If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I've been looking forward to this conversation. We both have talking to Robbie Suave, the reporter and staff editor for Reason.com. Reason.com, Free Minds and Free Markets. Robbie has a, a really interesting new book out. It's Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. Because four hours simply isn't enough. This is Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. Robbie Suave, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Uh, we've both been great fans of Reason.com for many, many moons and have quoted you guys many times on the uh, fabulous award-winning Armstrong and Getty radio show. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> we spent a fair amount of time last week on this story that was out about how Michigan State University had, uh, they were discouraging some words on campus. Do not use the word but, use the word and. <laughs> Do not use the phrase no problem. Because these are triggers. We want to use less triggers, according to the Michigan State, and more calming words. This sort of craziness, I sort of felt like or was hoping that it had, like, crested a while back and we were on the downside. But is it growing? Is it is it still a thing? It's definitely still a thing. It's hard to tell whether it's growing. The thing is, it's growing among a small subset of extremely progressive, sort of the woke radicals, I call them. But they're small in number. So there aren't very many of them. So it's not like, you know, old young people are suddenly like this and we have to make, you know, allowances for absolutely the entire generation. It's a small number of people, but they're so loud about it and they're, they've hijacked the conversation on college campuses. So even though they're a tiny minority, everyone is afraid to offend them, especially on campus. And you have entire administrative bureaucracies, you know, reconfiguring their policies to avoid offending 5% of the campus that actually cares. But that's what they're doing. That's well, what's what their power? Place after place. What's their power? What's a, what's a tiny group with crazy ideas? How do they get other people to go along with it? They yell, they protest at events, they show up, and people are afraid that if they speak out, then they'll be, they'll be branded a racist, a bigot. I mean, that's what the rest of the campus feels like. The administrators don't really know what to do about these people. 
Um, and some of them are, of course, ideologically sympathetic, but they just kind of default to, well, all right, we'll change our policy so that no one says anything offensive ever. We'll add a couple more categories of marginalization to what the microaggression training committee is supposed to prevent and so on and so forth. So it just it's a it's a compliance culture. And, uh, with the, you know, the squeakiest wheel gets the grief is, is the, 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 that saying is so true for how these issues are addressed on campuses. Well, and listen, we're going to get into the bulk of your book, uh, Panic Attack, Young Radicals in the Age of Trump, um, which I, and I love the way you approached it. But uh, it reminds me the previous question of um, when when like there's some <clears throat> incredibly draconian uh, policy in a state house to deal with child molesters. And you might think, wow, that's over the top or it's unconstitutional or, or what have you. You can so easily be portrayed as being pro-child molester or sympathetic to child rape if you advocate against the extreme position. And I know, you know, I got a kid halfway through college and I'm a big fan of, of yours and uh, Greg Lukianoff and, and, uh, and Fire and all those organizations. But if they can claim loudly and enthusiastically that they're fighting racism, you've got to stand up in favor of racism because they frame the argument that way. Right, right. And they don't recognize, you know, historically, the left has recognized, well, we want free speech and due process even for people we hate or who's, you know, who everyone hates, whose views are terrible, Nazis, the Ku Klux Klan, et cetera. Uh, the Westboro Baptist Church, and the left has said, well, no, we will defend their rights as well because, you know, we're, we're passionate about these issues. We see civil liberties as good in and of themselves. But the new kind of left, the campus left in particular, no longer thinks civil liberties are good in and of themselves. They're good if they're helping the right groups, the groups that the progressive left is sympathetic to, if it's about giving more rights to minorities of various uh, of various stripes, then they're good. But the same is not true for giving for giving rights to the far right or to people they disagree with or that they despise. Why should there be free speech for racists, for bigots? This is something a significant number of progressive activists are now asking. When you know every one of the older school left would have said, "Well, of course we're giving them rights. Everyone gets rights. That's that's you know, it's it's not free speech if it's conditional." Uh, but this tension has really emerged in recent years. I've heard it referred to as cultural Marxism, which I like as a term. But so I know one of your, your premises was you were going to listen to these people with an open mind, you know, see, see what they've got to say. How many people are sort of cynically trying to push some agenda? How many people believe this bullshit? I mean, they actually believe this crap about people being uh, offended by uh, like a phrase like no problem. People can believe things or they can convince themselves to believe things when it's in their their narrow self-interest to do so. You know, I, I there are all these kids, I've talked to some of them, saying they have post-traumatic stress orders, they have traumas, their mental health is in shambles. Um, you know, you would, you would think, like, all of these college kids had survived, like, like a, a, the genocide in Darfur or something, uh, when, when really they're the most, like, privileged people who have ever existed in human history. <laughs> what it is is they're, they're – but they're convincing themselves that they're emotionally and mentally ill because if you're a true progressive – you should be you should be having panic attacks and difficulty breathing when you're contemplating how unfair and unequal the world is. 
So they're trying to, to – the best way to outwoke each other is to be, well, okay, well, you might be, you know, marginalized because of your sex and your race and your gender identity status, but I, I'm also marginalized because I'm depressed and I have post-traumatic stress about how horrible everything is. So there's a kind of competition uh, on this regard that's very unhealthy because we shouldn't create incentives for people to see themselves as ill. Right. Uh, but that's what's happening. Right. To catastrophize everything and the rest of it, as Lukianoff and Haidt wrote about so brilliantly. But, yeah, it makes perfect sense. You can't portray all this stuff as catastrophic and murderous. And then somebody says, how are you? And you say, oh, I'm fine. <laughs> it's good. I got a really interesting class. In fact, I got to get across campus. So, no, you got to portray yourself as so terribly wounded that you can barely function. It's just, God, it's so pathetic. And listen, it's not like I fought at the Battle of the Bulge or anything like that. But we're, we're so glorifying victimhood and softness. It's just... I don't I don't know. I don't know where we go from here. Will will the real world slap these people in the face and 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 dissuade them like it does many of us from our youthful ideas? Uh, it, that will work for many of them. But remember, again, we're only talking about a very small number of people. My concern is it goes the other way. This, a couple of these people just have to get they'll come into firms, uh, media companies, social media companies, and they will they will say that if you're giving me any negative feedback, you know, you're, you're triggering my post-traumatic stress or whatever it is, or you're, you're further marginalizing me, et cetera, et cetera. And they'll weaponize harassment law, discrimination law, all the sort of formal things in place. They've already done that on campus. They, I mean, much, right. much of the terrible policy changes were because of Title IX. So they can do the same exact thing, even if there's only four of them, and uh, they'll make life miserable for, for everyone else. And that's what I'm quite concerned about. Right, right. If that happens, that could be a problem for everybody. But for now, it's, you know, it's mostly confined to a college campus. And so I can just laugh at it from the outside. Unless it turns violent, then it then it's not funny. What's the likelihood that, you know, people are serious about this enough that they're they're willing to hurt people? There, I mean, there's there's been some violence, luckily, blessedly rare so far. I mean, most of the kind of far left or ideological violence is coming out of like Portland right now, uh, which is, is not even necessarily connected to a, to a campus. I think the, the broader pr- uh, concern apart from violence is, is the amount of people who are self-censoring on campus, including the faculty, including like left to center faculty. Oh, they're terrified. Who are, you, you know, they're on the left, but they know they'll, they don't know, you know, what, the kids think they think slightly different things or they want to use slightly different words and they're afraid they say the wrong thing in class. They will, there will be a, there will be a complaint against them by their student quicker than you can snap your fingers. It's happening every day. And that is a, that is a really kind of dramatic and, and frightening change. Uh, to, in, oh, in my Absolutely. View. I have a professor friend who, who retired earlier than he'd planned on just because he just, you know, he just didn't want to deal with all this stuff. Well, and yeah, I've talked to a college instructor, and, and the point he made to me was that, you know, the first time this happens, you've got a fair amount of enthusiasm for fighting it and standing up for what's right and, and your right to teach and blah, blah, blah. But like the third time you start to think, you know what, the hell with it. I'm just not going to trigger these little dipshits. I'm going to get through my my day and, and finish my career. It's just it 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 wears you down. But hey, Robbie. Yeah. I, so the premise of the book is you actually sat down with a bunch of college type radicals and and asked them skeptically, skeptically but uh, respectfully, uh, you know what they think, what they want. Tell us about some of the people you met. Yeah, you know, I talked to uh, people at protests. 
um, who are trying to shut down conservative speakers, people like Charles Murray, Ben Shapiro, et cetera. Um, and, you know, they're interesting people. I'm interested in, in what they have to say. You know, not all of them, you know, want violence the first time they hear someone who disagrees with them. But they do, many of them, have this broader conception of what safety entails, very much speaking to a height Lukianoff uh, worldview. They're saying that... Uh, that safety includes, you know, my ability to walk outside my house and feel affirmed wherever I go. And, and, and that's a much, much broader conception of safety. And therefore, it is necessary and, and justified to stop your speech if your speech is going to make someone that I'm sympathetic to feel uncomfortable or emotionally compromised or harmed because their their mental well-being is a component of their safety just as much as their physical safety is. So you so we are justified in censorship uh, on those grounds. That's the, I think that's the new idea that is driving so much of what we're seeing over the last few years. It was not always like that, and I hope hopefully will not always be like that in the future. But that is the thinking of a certain subset of student radical uh, and justifying their activism. Well, who do they feel like ought to make the decision of what is okay speech and what is not? And since a lot of these people are smart, how how do they not understand, well, if you're going to give that power to somebody, at some point they might turn it on you? They don't even understand that there's no there's no legal regime to police that. I mean, there there are I've talked to people who said, well, I just want, you know, the campus's hate speech policy to reflect the federal laws about hate speech. And I said, "Okay, it already does. Your campus doesn't have one. And (laughs) there's no federal law prohibiting it. The the ultimate authority on, on that is the First Amendment. And the Supreme Court has made it abundantly clear there is no hate speech exception. But they are not even well-educated enough about, about that very basic fact about the First Amendment. So, of course, they're not going to understand the more complicated arguments for why it would be very fraught to give this power to some authority. They don't know that we've already had this debate over and over again, and the highest judicial authority says that no, no speech infringement, that's bad. Wow. Haven't they read anything about the Cultural Revolution in China and they realize that the rules can change very quickly and all of a sudden you're on the wrong side of it? I mean, most people don't even know what the freedoms protected by the First Amendment are. And that's not not that's not, I'm not just beating up on young people. That's like most people in general. They don't think as much about policy ideas and law and government, et cetera. They're not particularly informed. And that's fine as long as we're not making decisions for each other, people, others lives. When you know, then when we're giving too much power to a government deciding, you know, who's going to get crushed by it, that's when that starts to come back to bite you. Robbie, you might be amused by this. My twenty-year-old, uh, soon-to-be twenty-year-old uh, college student daughter is is a hoot. She's hilarious and and a good, solid libertarian. She uh, she gave me a screen capture of a tweet she saw. This guy says, "You know, uh, your your Second Amendment activists. I'm going to become a Third Amendment activist, and I'm going to go wherever there are troops, and I'm just going to start yelling. There's no way you're staying in my house." And her caption to me was, best daddy-daughter night ever. Let's do this. <laughs> so. It reminds me of the famous joke that a Third Amendment Defense Center celebrates, you know, 225th year of, 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 right. of, of victory. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, man. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Hey, listen, I want to talk just a little bit about your your career um, because there are a couple of things you busted open that were very, very well known, and people not, might not understand that you're kind of at the uh, 
the epicenter. Uh, the first one was that infamous Rolling Stone hoax article about sexual assault at the University of Virginia. Um, That's can you, right. Yeah, we're coming up on five years of that uh, since that, actually, uh, this uh, this fall. Give, give us the thumbnail sketch of how that went for you, how you became interested in that sort of thing. Sure. You know, this was this horrific story of gang sexual assault at University of Virginia. This young woman, student there, lured upstairs by the man she was on a date with and, you know, ritualistically assaulted by 12 fraternity brothers. Um, and this, you know, the story made huge waves, you know, cu- the, the culture of, of sexual abuse on campuses, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, I quickly became skeptical of it, as did many others, but I, I was one of the first to write an article uh, expressing grave reservations about some of the reporting in it. And then it soon turned out that the reporting in it was was terrible, <laughs> was was flawed in every way. Not only did this not happen, the, the man whom she said she was on a date with does not exist. And she had not been asked to give his name to the reporter. So they really the the editorial process at Rolling Stone magazine, it was just abominable how what a bad job they did and they were eventually successfully sued and i'm very skeptical of libel suits in general but they absolutely deserve to lose this one for for what a bad job uh, they did so that was a yeah that was one of my early kind of career triumphs and then you also got involved in the whole uh, catholic high school students at the lincoln memorial uh, the mm. stare down with the native american activist and all which was one of the most incredible shocking yet not surprising uh, heard attacks by the American media I've ever witnessed. Yes, yes, it was incredible. Yeah, I, I as I was sitting down to write about it, I saw that there was longer video footage available. It was actually footage from this third group, this black nationalist cult, the Hebrew Israelites, whom, whom I've encountered in D.C. before. They're crazy. Wackadoos. Yell stuff at people. Yeah. yeah. They're utterly crazy. And, they, you know, they had been harassing these kids for like an hour. The kids hadn't really done anything uh, certainly nothing bad in in response. And then this Native American man completely misrepresented the situation to the media, saying that the boys were uh, aggressors or about to be some aggressors, and he was disrupting them. But they, they he invaded their thing, what they were doing, and what they were doing was perfectly fine. So anyway, the media, as you well know, got this story just completely backward. Many backed down, you know, said, okay, well, here's the rest of the, the footage. That was fine. Uh, others, you know, doubled down. And we're like, well, these kids have to be bad, right? What other stuff can we dig up about them? You know, well, someone at a basketball game for this high school, you know, six years ago, they wore, they were, they were painted black. So they're racist. So, you know, connect the dots. Please. <laughs> Crazy stuff. Yeah. Crazy talking, stuff. talking about children. Yeah. And so similar to my question about the, the college campus stuff where I think don't, don't these people worry that at some point, the arbiters of what's right or wrong could turn it against me. It's similar with the journalism stuff. Okay, so so many journalistic outlets hate Trump or anybody might be a Trump supporter. So they're allowing all kinds of bad journalism to slide. Well, that's going to get turned on you at some point. You either have to have a standard for this or not. Yeah, especially when it's, you know, a, a lot of the actually edited reporting in the papers is often quite good, but then the social media presence of these people is just it, it, they just reveal their biases and their sort of sympathy for the activists and they're just reacting to the news and it's not going through an editor it's just your tweets obviously so a lot of the shoddy work uh is done there but again when they're and you know now we have the the power to record everything everyone's doing at all times there's a there's a, a and everything everyone says is transcribed because it's in text 
So you have a situation where young people are growing up in a world where everything they do and say can be, you know, dug up to destroy them. So that takes a responsible media to say some of these stories, okay, this does not involve a public person. There's no reason for us to to thrust these people, even if they are doing something wrong, onto a national spotlight because they're kids and they're not public figures. So that's going to be on the media to show more responsibility and not say, oh, this is oh, this is going to really, you know, make Trump people look embarrassed. So we got to write about it anyway. That's going to take some responsibility, some humility on their part to stave off a lot of the kind of anti-journalist sentiment you have right now. Some of it justified, some of it not. Um, but that's uh, that's you know they could they could do a better job and mute some of those criticisms. So we're kind of dancing around the term cancel culture, but uh, there are so many examples of various people losing shows, losing gigs, losing teaching spots, whatever for uh, you know saying something irresponsible currently or years ago or or whatever. And I know you've been writing recently about you know your dislike of cancel culture from either side. Uh, various professors who said something wackadoo left wingy a few years ago, and they happen to teach in places like Alabama. Um, you you could say <laughs> anything you wanted in California and get away with it on the left side. But so, is there a standard where I mean, if 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 I Joe Getty were teaching some college poli sci class, and I uh, and it came out that three years ago I tweeted, I'm in favor of the systematic. Uh, murder of, I don't know, Presbyterians. Now, would that make me so crazy you'd be okay with people handing me, handing me out of my job? How do you approach that? Uh, no, I'd still be defending the right to say that. I'd probably be the only one. It would be just me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I take such a... As well, particularly if you're at a public university campus, um, you know, you. I mean, that's kind of settled law, right? You do have that. There are guarantees in place for you, academic freedom guarantees. So unless it's unless you've violated some policy that is very carefully worded to to get around that, or if there you know if there's some you know if there's some evidence that you're biased against your Presbyterian students, and you know if you had said something like that, you know maybe it would be justified to look into you know whether you were giving Presbyterian students bad grades or something. No, I am. But other than that, no, I'm going <laughs> to. Well, and then they can get rid of you, but right. uh, or they can sanction you or something. But no, I'm uh, I'm uh, and a lot of but a lot of these are not as clear cut as that. It's it's remarks being chopped up and mischaracterized. Oftentimes it's not as um, bad as it seemed. Uh, it's, it's, and, it's, and it's for bad faith purposes on both sides. You know, it's, these, are, these are angry people on social media looking to destroy people, often for, for unjustified reasons or for reasons that are not as justified as, as the, you know, the out-of-context comments. I mean, so much of this, again, has targeted young people, has targeted teenagers who maybe said uh, – you know, they said something racially problematic or homophobic or something, you know, when they were like 11. And we're going to find that right. out and we're going to try to, you know, ruin their career prospects over it, which I just think is is odious, is truly odious to do. You talking about how it's a, a, a tiny minority of these people, they just happen to be very loud and they're uh, they're scaring us all to, uh, to to react to this. Reminds me of the Dave Chappelle Netflix special coming out. It's incredibly politically incorrect. The critics they had review it were almost 100% against it. The public was almost 100% in favor of it, which goes to show you that the the average person out there doesn't have the same view of this sort of stuff as, well, the, the tiny minority. Yes, exactly. It was fantastic. I watched it twice. Um, and that goes to show you that, you know, when we're talking about 
wokeness and and the demands of progressive culture. We're talking about, you know, highly uh, tend to be very wealthy, very privileged coastal elites who think they represent more people than they actually do. I mean, this is, you know, nothing, something that shows how clear this is, is Joe Biden's continued success in the Democratic Party, which is not actually surprising if you talk to anyone who's like a Democrat in the vast swath of the country, you know, because they're moderate, they're older, some are religious. The, the, the people I know in like left of center media who are in media institutions, campuses, etc., they hate Biden and they're utterly dumbfounded that anyone could like him. But that so that distorts coverage of it. It makes it seem like there's more progressives than they are. But they're just they're just not the people who dissent from this, even in like the, the left uh, or, or the liberals are, are not well represented in loud, powerful institutions. Yeah, that that tiny minority of people that uh, that, that that have those views of uh, they, they think they represent more people. There's that part of it. And then there's the even worse portion of it of. Um, they feel like if, if, for instance, I find Chappelle funny, uh, or found that those jokes funny, that I shouldn't, and really somebody should be in charge of making sure I don't see that sort of stuff because I don't, you know, I don't know my own good. Um, that that well, condescending I, sort of patronizing view of it is even is more maddening to me. Well, and Chappelle, you know, Chappelle was good and bold and transgressive. When he was criticizing the right or taking on right, beliefs, of course. But then he's evil and backward and punching down and reactionary when he's when he's making fun of things the left believes. And and they have they have just they have been especially with, with this with the recent Chappelle thing. They they made that pretty clear that it's yes, it's going to be a hypocritical double standard, but that's what we actually believe. Uh, Robbie, great to chat with you. Really wish you well on the book, Panic Attack, Young Radicals in the Age of Trump. Definitely worth a read. And hey, let's not make this last time. Let's talk again. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks All right. so much. Way to go. Nice job. Can it get any nuttier when you've got Michigan State teaching the, uh, the, the student leaders on campus, do not use the phrase no problem because that might lead somebody to believe that they could be a problem. Right. I mean, you, can, you, you can't get any crazier than that. That is, it reminds me of the, the approach you'd make with somebody who is profoundly mentally ill. Right. I mean, that you had to be so incredibly careful uh, about what you said that, listen, don't mention mice. I mean, it's like, what? I can't say but. It's cold, but it's going to be a good football game. No, no, no. No, no it's cold, and it's going to be a good oh, football game. Oh, no. Don't say <laughs> but. Oh, no. Are you kidding me? God, you, you got to call these people out for how crazy they are and have have the confidence to say, I'm not what you're saying I am. You're a nut. And, you know, just call them out. Although, you know, you're some beleaguered college professor. I get it. After a while, you think, I don't need this headache. I'm getting close to retirement. Or these these dipshits, they, their parents don't care if they learn anything. The administration doesn't care if they learn anything. I don't Extra. care if they learn anything. I'm beat. <laughs> Whatever. So, I don't know. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl level scandals. 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 